Reducing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Dr. Steve James served for over 20 years in the British military before earning a PhD and becoming one of the US's foremost experts on the effects of fatigue and sleep deprivation on law enforcement. He outlines a range of practical ways police officers can manage their sleep, coffee and stimulant intake, seasonal changes and overtime. Welcome to Reducing Crime, I'm Jerry Ratcliffe. My guest for this episode is Professor Steve James. Steve served for over 20 years in the British Army as a soldier and officer, with multiple deployments in Cyprus, the former Yugoslavia, Northern Ireland and Afghanistan. Being the overachiever that he is, he added to his bachelor's degree from Trinity College Dublin with a master's and PhD from the university, where he is now an assistant professor in the Department of Translational Medicine and Physiology, Washington State University. His 2015 PhD dissertation was on the effects of fatigue and distraction on driving performance in police officers, and he's since gone on to become one of the country's leading experts on issues of sleep, fatigue and safety for law enforcement. Given the recruitment crisis is currently pushing what few officers seem to be still left on the job to work longer and harder, you can probably see why I thought fatigue and the need for sleep was an important officer wellness topic for the podcast. Often in collaboration with his wife, Professor Lois James, Steve's research has attracted funding from the National Institute of Justice, National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, Office of National Research, DARPA, and the Department of Defense. He's also been published in leading journals across both criminology and medicine. Now, we made the mistake of scheduling our chat the day after the Axon party at the annual conference of the International Association of Chiefs of Police in Dallas. If you've never been... Let's just say that Axon are quite convivial hosts, and it is rather easy to be generously overserved at the bar. But we rallied, and our chat covers the contributions of our mutual friend and his longtime mentor, Brian Viler, how much sleep you need, how to manage shift work, and how to regulate your coffee and Red Bull intake. We also touched on Dunning-Krugers, Google it, cock blockers, don't Google it, at least not from a work computer, and sympathetic arousal. You probably don't know what that is, but I bet you're intrigued. Yeah, how's it going? Working hard and drinking hard, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's brutal to put you on at 8 o'clock this morning. Well, and the funny thing is, and I, and I kind of said, you know, if you turned up for an 8 a.m. session after the Axon party, you're not the room I need to be speaking to about <laughs> fatigue. So, <laughs> right. Right. so it's everyone who's not here right. that I need to be speaking to. Yeah, all these people who are barely functioning today and rolling yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. i got to start off by asking you the obvious question. Um, mm -hmm. Where's Lois? <laughs> Lois is presenting at a veterans conference up in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's a weak excuse, but we'll put up with it. Uh, but, you know, I'm a poor facsimile for her, and I spend my days saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Lois James's husband. I'm like, oh, oh, now I know who you are. Yeah, great. Isn't that weird? <laughs> there are a bunch of academic couples kicking around. The Brantinghams is yeah. one of the most obvious ones. And it's just this sort of inevitability about it yeah. that whenever I'm hanging out with you, it's always the, it's everybody comes up and says, where's Lois? Yes. Like, I'm a person too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as a husband, I'm super proud that she is as accomplished as she is. But um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got this great team going over in Washington State, right? Yes. It's yourselves. Is Brian retired? Uh, Brian's retired. He's, he's very open about this. You know, he's, he's stood on large stages and said it. He unfortunately was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and, and he kind of wanted people to know that because 
he's so passionate about the science that it's hard for him to disengage and he didn't want people to think that he just didn't care anymore, right? He's a lovely man. I mean, he's, I thought he's, he, wonderful. he's so committed to this field and to officer safety. and Yeah. yeah. You know, and it, it was born out of his own personal experience of that when he was a street cop, a gang sergeant in L.A. back in the late 70s, early 80s, and he realized when he was burning the candle at both ends, whether or not it was work or, or going to grad school, that he wasn't the type of cop that he wanted to be. That fatigue was really detrimental to his performance and his safety. So he, he sort of started this personal journey of understanding how fatigue affects policing performance and literally wrote the book Tired Cops. Brian is the godfather of police fatigue research, and he was uh, the director of crime control at NIJ. Not only did he kind of start the discipline within the sleep field of specifically looking at cops, he, he also made sure that the investment was there. We all have these great ideas, we all have these passion projects, but unless a funding agency is going to pay for it, it's very difficult to get work done. It's sad that money has to drive what we do, but research it, can be expensive. So. It is the way, of, yeah. and in the end, the universities make it that way. I mean, they, yeah. they have an altruistic goal, universities, but I think people often forget the bottom line is if they go bankrupt, nobody's learning anything. Right, for sure. If they're going to carve off time when you're not teaching, then they have to make that up in some Teaching? Other. What's that? I'm in that ideal position where I've got a tenure-track position, but I've got 90% research. Wonderful. So. And, and you're married to Lois. Where is yes. Lois, by the way? I meant to ask. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she's still in Nova Scotia. So you came into this field in a very different route. I, I mean, did. I, I know that you spent some, uh, you were in the British Army for many years. Yes. And you spent uh, some time in the regiment, for those in the know. And, but you spent the majority of your time, I think, in the, in the Royal Irish Regiment. Yes. I commissioned into the Royal Irish, and I, I, loved, I loved everything. I loved being, you know, a soldier, you know, to put it in American terms being enlisted. I did that for almost a decade and then commissioned into the Royal Irish. I know you were in one of the other... I spent six <laughs> years in the... In the well, I, I was in the reserves, it doesn't count. But yeah, I was, I was commissioned into yeah, yeah. the Royal Engineers. So. But how many tours did you do? So I did six in Belfast, two in Yugoslavia, and then one in Afghanistan. And then I did two years over in Cyprus. We were outside the wire, live armed every day, doing some security work for other assets. Mm -hmm. I loved every minute of it. Jerry, I don't know how you feel about this, but working with cops, you sometimes have to prove your mettle. You have to prove that you're worthy of interacting with this community and have their own rites of passage and, you know, academies and, and so on. And Well, I think they even pay attention to things like back in the day when I was in the Met, people wouldn't just say, oh, you're in the Met Police. But if you're in the know, they would ask where you were. Because right. where you got posted to, you know, Orpington and Kent, well, that's very sweet down there. Right. And if you were in Brixton, it was a whole different ball game. It's yes. like they, yeah. people would look at your shoulder and they would know where you were posted. Yeah. And it would tell you something about the experience that person had. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I actively, especially having spent so long in Northern Ireland, I don't wear any clothing that has any military reference to it. I don't have any stickers on my car. I don't. No. Outside of working directly with law enforcement and military organizations over here, I downplay what I did because it's just our culture, right? Yes. Especially with the, the threat of the IRA back in the day, actively targeting off-duty soldiers and so on. It amazed me when I came to this country that people were really obvious who were soldiers, who were ex-soldiers, who were police officers, who were ex-police officers, FOP number plates. Nobody in Britain would do that in a million years. Please break into my car and set it alight. Ideally with me out of it. <laughs> back home, they wouldn't care if you were in it or not. No. But, uh, I did some work on a DARPA project for the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. DARPA wanted to develop training for young soldiers and Marines 
to build true trust and legitimacy with local nationals overseas, but without having specific like Afghan awareness or Iraq awareness or wherever the next hotspot is, basic uh, skill sets. And as part of that, I went and, and did a number of courses with the U.S. Marine Corps. And one was the Enhanced Combat Hunter course over at Camp Lejeune. And uh, I was talking with the, the, the officer commanding Let's have a walk through the car park and look at the back of the decals in all of their windows and kind of wrote these profiles of the Marines and went in back into the classroom and okay, go, like, who's got three kids, a dog, and served in this tour? And you, you can start profiling people. Yeah. And it's like, it's just a different culture that we, we grew up in compared to over. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I appreciate and I admire that American culture is so proud of their service you know, kind of jealous at some, like we don't get military discount back home. No. The fact that America does at least attempt to honor and their veterans and their service personnel is a great thing, you know. But from a security point of view, I, you know, I'm like, at what cost? The thing about the Irish problem, the troubles, is that nobody here really has a good understanding of it. They right. don't have a good conceptual understanding of what it's like. Right. I rolled in diplomatic protection in central London right the way through the middle of a provisional IRA bombing campaign. It's a very different kind of yeah. security situation than anybody yeah. here is really used to. Can I swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. I fucking hope you will. <laughs> well, not really swearing, but at one point, I was literally a professional cock blocker for the Queen. And what I mean by that is the IRA used to have a tactic of employing attractive women that would bring young soldiers home from bars. When they got back to the, the woman's apartment, there'd be two IRA guys there with whatever. So I literally had a job where I had to go to bars, we called it Shark Watch back in the day, with a group of young soldiers, stay sober and was armed, uh, and say, no, you can't go home with that girl. Like, oh God. I'm the most popular guy in the world. <laughs> like, that was my job at times, so. That's fantastic. But with all these tours, I mean, there, there is something about uh, deploying. It's a whole different environment. I mean, you must have some personal experiences, not in policing, but certainly in the military. You bring to your research some experience of how fatigue can drive changes in behavior that are detrimental to performance, right? Absolutely. Having gone through military training myself, I know that we always used to do a lot of weapon work when we were tired because they just want to get into that muscle memory that you just fall back on it when you have levels of exhaustion. And it's a really important point that you're making. A fatigued brain can do something that's rote or anticipated particularly well. What we suffer from is vigilant attention. So we can't see changes in our environment when we're fatigued. And we also find it difficult to notice changes in the stimulus that's coming in, right? So it's why you can do something when you've been on the job for 18, 19, 20 hours. And you think that you're okay because you can do that stuff that you're used to, manipulating weapon systems, whatever it happens to be. But what we're really bad at is noticing changes. Are you talking about our situational awareness of yes. what's around us? Yes, absolutely. Is that external to us, but also our own deterioration, our own capacity? Yeah, then there's a little bit of, not controversy, but kind of good scientific tension in the community about whether or not this is a actual identifiable phenomenon or not, but there's kind of this local sleep and use case dependency. Circuits that we use, cognitive circuitry that we overuse, will go offline independently. I have no cognitive circuits that I overuse. <laughs> Most of mine are painfully underused. <laughs> right. Well, that's actually a safe place to work in, right? Because if we are maximizing our cognitive effort just getting through the day, we've got no capacity, right? So. When we look at training police officers or military folk or whomever, 
what we should be aiming for is the optimum or the criterion level of performance at the least cognitive overhead. Right? So Dunning-Krugers have just got it nailed down then, basically. Yeah, yeah. So it, like they don't like to hear this, but police officers are humans too. They are limited by the same biology as the rest of us. We don't have as much research as we would want on the impact of sleep deprivation, long shifts, and so on, specifically with police officers. But we do have about 120 years of industrial medicine in this field. Right. Police officers are humans too, and they are bound by those biological limitations that we have. And we sleep at a cellular level. Like our body functionally changes when we're awake or asleep. So we can't just man up and muscle through. No. What we end up doing is sacrificing safety, performance, and ultimately we sacrifice health. John Violante at a SUNY Buffalo, if, if your listeners are not familiar with his work, they, they absolutely should be. He's a retired New York State police officer himself. Decade after decade, he's been working with Buffalo PD and showing that just being a police officer can take up to a decade off your life expectancy. That's cherry to know. I know. You know, and that's when we don't pay attention to the corrosive nature of the job. What's his name again? John Violante. Okay, so what I'll do for listeners is if you come to reducingcrime.com slash podcast and look for the episode with Steve James who's with me, uh, I'll provide links to his work for you. He's a giant in, in the field of morbidity and mortality for law enforcement. So in policing, what are we doing wrong? This is where I'm going to maybe show some of my own personal bias and maybe, you know, maybe this isn't as evidence-based as it probably should be, but I truly believe... Yeah, but you have an informed opinion. Yeah, I truly believe that most, if not, you know, the vast majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of police officers come to work on a daily basis wanting to serve their communities, do good. There's very, if any, people who are in the profession for the wrong reasons. Right. When we have a well-balanced officer who is looking after their stress management, looking after their fatigue, um, being mindful, has the knowledge and training that they require to do the job, we get the type of policing that American society is asking for. So for me, when it comes to police reform, the first place we need to start with is the raw material, which is the police officer. And as human beings, we require sleep. We do not do well under stress. You know, our, the stress response to things is a, an adaptive response to get us out of trouble. It's not a place to live in. If we look at the, you know, the animal kingdom and we look at animals that have fight or flight responses, you know, when the wildebeest go to the watering hole and they lose Billy on Monday and Bob on Tuesday, by Wednesday they're looking for a new watering hole, right? <laughs> the herd moves. But police officers are paid and, and, and asked to constantly go back to those places where they are put at a higher level of risk and, and stress than a normal human being should, should be exposed to. I did over a year's worth of field work in Kensington in Philadelphia, which is one of the biggest open-air drug markets. You just see people are running into compassion fatigue. It is just orders of magnitude more exhausting to be there than it is to police in other environments in this country. Absolutely. You know, and coming from a military background, policing is, just runs counter to how I'm, I understood things worked. We would train for six to nine months for a six to nine month deployment and come back, recover, and train again. Police officers train for four to six months for a 30-year deployment. This is going to sound derogatory and I don't mean it to, but we're kind of giving them the amount of training we expect of a college athlete or a high school athlete, but then expecting them to perform at Olympic levels. It's interesting that the military have managed to escape what is the general approach, certainly seems to be emphasized in the United States, that we want high levels of public service and no intention of paying for it, right? We want the smallest level of taxes, 
but I would like exceptional service from my, from my government and public service. And you're not going to get it if you don't pay for it. Mm -hmm. For people who are in the job, what are they doing wrong in terms of managing their sleep and their fatigue and what impact is it having on them? So the first thing I would suggest to anybody is to listen to your body. At 56, mine just creaks a right. lot. <laughs> we have a lot of you know, validated tools and sophisticated ways and, and wearable devices that are like research grade and so on. But I could just ask an officer, are you satisfied with your sleep? And that'll get me halfway to the answer I'm looking for. Right, but I'm an academic and I haven't had the right amount of sleep I should have had for about 15 years. True. And that, it can't be the stress of the job because I'm an academic. I mean, <laughs> borderline counts as a job for crying out loud. It's, it's, a different, it's a different type of stress. But the first thing is listen to your body. The second thing is stop filling it full of chemicals. There's no substitute for sleep. The, the, the most amount of Red Bull or Monster or, or Bang or whatever it happens to be, it's snake oil. Are they detrimental? They are. They're, they've been linked to higher rates of negative cardiac events. So not just go easy on them, but actually cut them out? Cut them out. If you're doing it because you like the feeling and like the taste, that's one thing. But they're not actually improving your performance. So my colleague, Devin Hansen, did some caffeine dose response trials. So we sleep deprived people. One cohort's on a placebo tablet, one gets 200 milligrams every four hours, one gets three, one gets four, and so on. Caffeine is the best supplement that we have, the safest and the most effective supplement right now for mediating the effects of fatigue on performance. But after about 200 milligrams, which is about a single shot of espresso or you know, a one shot or a drip coffee from Starbucks or, or wherever, every four hours. After that, the return on investment in performance is negligible. The other thing that's important is you should take it when you need it. All right. And the more, and I'm, I'm just as bad as anyone else. I, I like the taste of coffee, so I tend to drink it all day, but it doesn't have an effect of, of alerting me when I need it. I'm just trying to manage that coffee to bourbon transition yes. time of the day. It so seems to be creeping well, earlier and earlier. That's where the Irish have the world fixed because we added the two together and call it an Irish coffee. Beautifully done. So, why sacrifice one for the other? Uh, but the other thing is to understand not only do we build up a tolerance and we should use it judiciously when we need it, but also understand that it takes time to metabolize, right? If you drink a cup of coffee, it's going to take 30 to 40 minutes for that caffeine to hit your bloodstream. A good friend and colleague of mine, he was a full bird colonel in the, in the U.S. Army, developed a caffeine delivery chewing gum. You can buy it on Amazon. It's called Be Alert, but it was developed for the Army. Now, it tastes awful, right? You're not eating this stuff for fun. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. But the caffeine right. gets delivered instantly. So if you are a night shift officer and you are judicious with your coffee, instead of grabbing a monster, maybe just keep a pack of this gum in your right. pocket. But to be fair, has military food ever been good? <laughs> you know how bad it is for us when we're trading our stuff for MREs, right? Oh my God, no. <laughs> my platoon sergeant on my last tour he was over in Iraq earlier, and he got dropped into a what would be described as a FOB now. That's a Ford operating base yeah. for people, yeah. So it's right up there on the, um, the bleeding uh, uh, edge. On the edge. But they dropped him with a pallet load of our rations with a single menu. They had Jesus. the same thing to eat every day for six months. Jesus. So he was a little sensitive to, to food when, yeah. by the time That's I got to work it. with him. <laughs> you were just talking about watching the caffeination. What are some of the other things we can do to minimize the fatigue? You know, one of the basic things are just looking at our sleep hygiene. And, and what that is really is about creating the conditions that are conducive to good sleep when you have the opportunity to sleep. 
First thing, we like to sleep in cold, dark, quiet environments. Put your AC down. I know this is not going to save the planet, but it might add at least a few years to your life. But drop the temperature in your room to about 65 degrees. Yep. We actually like to sleep in a cool environment. Invest in a couple of nightlight. You and I, Jerry, we're starting to age, and as men, you know, we have prostate issues and whatnot. Not yet, but I'm, I'm familiar with okay. the inevitable. It's just around the corner. <laughs> just around the corner. You know, needing to go to the restroom in the middle of the night is a common occurrence for men our age. Put in a path of nightlight so you don't have to turn a light on. So when you are disrupted, your sleep is disrupted, don't turn on a light to go get water, to go to the restroom, and don't pick up your cell phone not just for the light that it emits into your eyes, but you get cognitively, like, yo, I'll just answer That little dopamine hit, just quick look at Facebook. Yeah, yeah. so. Twitter. Um, I know a lot of officers are on call and so on, and back in the day when they had pagers and whatnot, it was easy, right? No one picked no one picked up one of those for fun. No, it's right. But. Showing your age, mate, pagers. Yeah, I know. That's, like, that's so, like one after a carrier pigeon turning up. So, you know, before we got as politically correct as we are now, we, d we did used to say, because we don't have a TV in a bedroom, I recommend do not have a TV in your bedroom. And we used to say that the bedrooms were two things, sleeping and I can't wait to find out what the other thing is. <laughs> so, but I mean, you, you should create an environment in your bedroom that is conducive to sleep. So in, in, especially if you're on graveyard shift, make sure you invest in blackout curtains or blackout blinds. Um, if you live in a neighborhood that has a lot of environmental noise, block it out with white noise white noise machines yeah. yeah because as humans we can condition ourselves to noisy environments what we are really bad at sleeping through and this is a safety mechanism that our brain is is those sudden interrupted the dog right. barking i'm at the lorenzo hotel here in, in dallas at the conference and it's right next to the freeway right and it's not the cars what wakes me up is motorbikes yeah really are motorbikes going past yeah no it's those sudden interrupting noises that you know, we get pulled out of sleep and it's like, well, of course, you know, if there's a saber-toothed tiger growling at the front of our cave, we need to know about that, right? So you mentioned graveyard shift back when I was a cop back in the 1980s and into the 1990s, my whole career was spent doing shift work. Yeah. And the transition from one shift to another was always just dire. I mean, it would knock you out for days. Yeah. Is, are there good ways to manage that? Or do we just, I mean, it felt like it took years off my life. It, it probably did. It, it absolutely did. And, and it shows sitting, uh -huh. a, sitting, yeah. sitting across from you. Yeah. I just, mean, look at me. I'm only 23 <laughs> years old. It's brutal. Um, the short answer is that we are diurnal animals. Okay, you have to explain that word because that sounds like I've got prostate problems. <laughs> it is. No, it's, uh, we're familiar with the term nocturnal. So bats, mice, so on. Creatures who, who are mobile and functional at night sleep during the day. We're the opposite. We are biologically designed at a cellular level to operate during the day and sleep at night. And anything we do counter to that comes at a cost. Now, can we lessen the pain that that, that creates? Yes. If you know, There's a couple of different options that agencies around the nation do. Some have static shifts, so you bid for your shift at the end of each year for the next calendar year. I've met patrol officers who have got 18 years on night shift, and that is corrosive. At the extreme other end, you have agencies that do rapid rotation. You do two days yeah. of that, three days of that, couple of days off, a week of nights. It was a, it's all over the place, yeah. And from a biological point of view, that's probably preferable as long as you're rotating forward. And what I mean by that, you're going from an early to a late day to a night. The absolute worst thing you can do is go from nights 
to days and then off. So rapid rotation is okay as long as it is rapid. So two or three days followed by two or three mids followed by two or three nights. Interesting. That is sustainable. So that's something that organizations can help work towards. They're, they're, we, are we getting a better sense of what is an optimal way to manage a job that's 24-7 um, from an organizational perspective? I would say that the agency that did it the best, and I, I haven't kept up with them, so I don't know if they still did it, but my mentor, Brian Vila, you know, we spoke about earlier, and a great medical doctor, sleep physician, Chuck Samuels, who has worked with Canadian Olympic squads and RCMP and so on. They worked with Calgary PD up in Canada. And from my understanding from the project, the union negotiated with the executives that if they met these criteria, they could set the shift schedule. And what they ended up, based on the health and wellness of their members, was that day shifts work 12s, mid shift work 10s, night shift work 8s, but they all got paid as if they worked four tens, And they sort of rotated every three months. U.S. labor law doesn't allow you to get paid for hours you don't work and those types of things. So it's messy. But the really unsatisfying answer for your listeners is it, is it all depends on the pace of life within your jurisdiction. If your call volume is high, it's something different. Should you have shorter hours then? Shorter hours, yes. But, but you end up working more days. That's the problem. So there's a trade-off because consecutive nights get more and more dangerous. So if you did eight hours but had to work five of them to make a 40-hour work week, the fifth shift is incredibly dangerous. So one of the areas we'd recommend is sticking with four tens. I was wondering if there's an optimum pattern. Organizations obviously are wanting to look to, to minimize their liability. You would think that, right? If you're gonna steal, steal from the best. And I stole blatantly from Jeff Alpert's work, right? Veteran drinker of the policing circuit, yes. yes. So his work on willful neglect around pursuit driving started shaping the way that agencies thought about their pursuit policies because we're shifting the liability from the individual officer to the agency. And, and for your listeners, the basic principle here is that as the scientific evidence mounts that a practice that your agency is allowing, then that is willful neglect. Yes, and I think that's increasingly where we're going to see, I think inevitably, a real explosion in evidence-based policing. Because I think if we're going to move from being a job to a profession, we're going to have to lower some of these things. And I think yeah. eventually police chiefs here and everybody's going to have to get on board because at some point people's going to turn around and say, there's a lot of evidence that this is really bad practice. And I'm unfortunately getting involved in more and more arbitrations, expert testimony and so on around this issue where fatigue is a causal factor or at least a contributing factor in many really negative police community interactions. Right. Uh, 10 hours, four tens is an optimum, it, it is the best from a, of the worst? It's the, it's the, it's the least bad option. <laughs> right. So <laughs> You know what? Yeah. I think in policing today, we'll take that, right? Yeah. We'll and you count know, that as a win. I, I was joking with my audience this morning, like if bad guys, offenders, have circadian rhythms too. If we could just convince everyone to only commit crime during the day, things would be a problem. And, and, and that's kind of where the science meets reality, right? Policing is a 24-7 occupation where you don't have control over the community need for the most part. So there's never really one good answer of what is the right shift. I, I can often see what's the wrong shift. There's there an agency down in California a few years ago said, hey, 
we've done this new, amazing new shift pattern. Um, I want you to have a look at it. And we have mathematical models to see if, if they make sense or not. And it's what aviation uses is these mathematical models. Which is one of the businesses that I highlight on a regular basis as a, as a fantastic system that just continues to incrementally learn mm -hmm. the best way to do things. It's yeah. fantastic. But they also have a lot of both government and industry investment in that. Yes. So it, it didn't come cheaply. No. So what were they doing in California? Sorry. Sorry. So they, they sent me this shift schedule where we, they said, oh, we've broken our agency into two and we're running four tens like you say you, we should. But the other half of the agency are, are running three 13 and a half hour shifts. And they were running Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. And this was a, a seaside community that had a huge influx of people at the weekend. Right. It's a party town. So not only are they running 13 and a half hour shifts at night, but it's, they're very busy 13 and a half hour shifts. In what way would their performance be degraded in those last couple of hours, in the hours kind of 10 to 13 yes. and a half? Well, it's interesting you say that because it's not just hours 10 to 13 and a half. Because of the accumulative impact of those the first and second shift, their performance at the start of hour one of the third shift would have been the equivalent of blowing a 0.10 BAC. Sustained wakefulness, so being awake for 17 to 19 hours, is equivalent of blowing a 0.05 BAC. Really? And being awake for 24 hours straight is the same as blowing a 0.10. But when you have accumulated fatigue from multiple nights that's, that stays with you. It's very difficult, as any of your listeners who've worked graves know, to, to get consolidated recovery sleep during the daylight hours. You've mentioned consolidated sleep a couple of times. Then, oh, if, if I volume, if I sleep for an hour, wake up, sleep for an hour, wake up, sleep, if I get six hours of that, and God, I can't remember the last time we got six proper hours of sleep, <laughs> but you know what I mean? If I get yeah. four hours of yeah. that, is that the same as four hours altogether? As long as the blocks are a minimum of one full sleep cycle, which is roughly 90 minutes. We've done a study in our lab where we, people got to sleep eight hours or two chunks of four hours. They, it was just the same. If you're breaking your sleep, we call it split sleep. As long as those split sleep chunks of sleep are at least 90 minutes, ideally three, four hours, so you're getting sleep cycles through, the body is very, very good at um, keeping record of what it needs. Do you just need one big block like that? Well, you need to go through various sleep cycles because the, the, the body prioritizes the different types of sleep. There's still so much we don't know. Like, why do we dream? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? But there are stuff we do know, and we do know that the vast majority of physical repair, because sleep is the body's way of re pressing the reset button on us, and the vast majority of physical repair and where growth hormone is produced, for example, is through delta sleep. When we sleep, we go through alpha, which is that light falling asleep, theta, that light sleep where you're tossing and turning. And if you're woken up, you might not even know you're asleep. And then there's delta sleep. That's the sleep of the dead. And if you get woken from delta, you feel groggy and disoriented and suffer what we call sleep inertia. Feel sleep. groggy and disoriented <laughs> with a sense of inertia most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're probably chronically sleep deprived. Not just waking up, yeah, through the rest so, of the time. Um, but the body craves delta sleep, and it, it, we get the bulk of our delta sleep in the first few sleep cycles. I was really interested to see that you have also done research on post-shift driving home. Yeah. It, it's a horrible feeling when you just cannot keep awake. I used to ride a motorbike. 
And I've ridden going up the Blackwall Tunnel Northern approach in the East End of London after a, a long night shift. And, and this was probably, this is my fifth or sixth night shift I've just finished. And I'm doing 70 miles an hour on the motorway and I woke up as I hit the rumble strip on the right. side of the motorway. Yeah. And I kept the bike on the road, but I went home the rest of the way with the visor open and got home. And then I couldn't sleep because the adrenaline rush of nearly killing myself was, I mean, the whole thing was just a hot mess. Collisions after graveyard shift or night shift is the number one killer of medical professionals, nurses, physicians, and so on. Wow. The study I did, we brought 90 police officers in and the fatigue was generated in the real world. So they came in after their shift and we simulated holding them over for a half shift, which in this day and age is Tuesday. It is at the moment with the chronic decline in policing numbers, yeah. So I have use of force simulators, I've got driving simulators, we did some distracted driving tasks, scenarios that may or may not require force, some report writing tasks that looked at memory and, and so on. And then at the end of it, we got them to commute home in my driving simulator. A full 10% of those officers fell asleep at the wheel of my driving simulator. Good grief. I mean, it doesn't surprise yeah. me. It doesn't surprise the worst, me. You know, Lois and I will travel anywhere all across the U.S. We're working with Oscar Kilo uh, in the U.K. Police College Fantastic. right now. But of everywhere I've been over the last, what, 13 years now, I got a call from a sheriff to say that one of his corrections deputies, a 30-year veteran, was trying to support three generations of family on his salary alone, was working double after double after double. And one day, was driving home after, I think the fourth double in a row, fell asleep at the wheel of his vehicle, hit another driver, and killed the seven kids in that car. Jesus. And he walked away from it. Jesus. That's 30 years of service to his community, and all he's ever gonna be known for yeah. is that cop that killed those seven kids. Yeah. He has to live with that. I pray to God that he's still alive. Right. Because I, I don't, yeah, you know. I don't know how. And yeah. I go up and I do an eight-hour training with the rest of the agency. And the sheriff was telling me, the union won't budge on overtime. They won't. Right. They want their members to, to have an income. And their boat or their lake cabin or whatever. Part of me, I'm like, you have to be alive to spend it. Dead Back people then. don't drive boats. No. And you also don't live long. I mean, if this will probably make me super unpopular with your listeners. But Believe me, of, never compared to me, so you're, <laughs> in, you're in good shape, mate. But one of the worst policies there is from a, a health perspective is this idea, what your pension ends up being is like an average of or the highest of your last three or four years because it incentivizes working all the hours God sends to maximize that amount of money so that their pension gets bumped up. It's great for the pension fund because they're not alive long enough to draw from it. That's, isn't that a perverse yeah, system? Yeah, it's, it's just like, yeah. and I, I do think that if someone is going to give their best years of their lives to their community, we at least should let them ride off into the sunset healthy, both physically and psychologically healthy enough to survive their retirement. Are we at the stage where we have enough knowledge and we're reasonably confident in that knowledge to start drawing limits on people doing double shifts? What is your behavior? What is your capacity if you're in a high risk, high crisis situation, 14, 15 hours into a workday? Absolutely, we are. There are some things that complicate it. And one, we all have different tolerances to sleep loss. The vast majority, 98 or so percent of the population 
need somewhere between seven and nine hours. So the eight hours a night type of thing, that's the average. The last time I had seven, eight, nine hours was back when I was in my 30s, I think. Yeah, there's two really important caveats with this. One is that people get used to a new normal. So when I hear cops saying, I understand your science, but I'm okay on five hours or I'm okay on six hours, what I hear is like, I'm okay operating at 70% or 80%. Right. And I think for the officer's safety, for your colleague's safety, and for community safety, policing is a 100% job. As a college professor, I'm happy if I can reach like 40%, but right. nobody but can you know, tell. If you're stacking shelves in a grocery store, no one's gonna die if you mix the beans and peas up, right? right? Yeah. I don't think policing is that kind of occupation. The other thing that was really important was that when they were given three nights of 10 hours of recovery sleep, those individuals who had five hours of sleep for seven days didn't even get close to baseline with three nights of 10 hours. So it's, once you lose what, it, it's incredibly yes, difficult it's to get much, it back. It's much more effective and much more important to maintain your fatigue and try and guard against the fatigue in the first place than trying to recover it after. You mentioned Calgary, and I got to thinking that Calgary is up in the far north. And having grown up in Glasgow and Scotland, I remember the weird thing that you go for a night drinking with your mate, and then, you know, in the summer you come out and it would still be daylight, right. which was very surreal. Does that level of seasonality have an impact on all of this? It does. You know, the, our circadian rhythm is reset by that giant gas ball in the sky. And if you don't see it, we, we can start getting some minor amounts of circadian drift. That's important. a great word. Circadian drift sounds like a cool band name, but <laughs> what does that actually mean? We, we should start about So we're all on a near 24-hour circadian, our internal body clock. Yeah. You know, you might be 23 hours and 58 minutes, but I'm 24 hours and 7 minutes, right? right? Uh, and we see this in submariners. We see this in people on this International Space Station, that even absent the rhythmicity of the rising and setting of the sun, our internal clocks are pretty accurate. They're not all exactly 24, but near enough. So when you don't have that environmental cue, we can start drifting. So now I don't have a financial stake in any company that makes anything like this, but I do recommend anyone working graveyard, especially those working in the winter up north, just buy a seasonal affected disorder light box. It's a high intensity light panel that when you're having breakfast in, the, in your morning, your work day, just stick it on so it helps reset your body clock and it, it helps with uh, with alerting you and then conversely you need to start avoiding intense light sources prior to sleep what's next for you I want to understand not only the impact of uh, sleep stress or sleep and shift work and so on I'm starting to move into the intersectionality of stress sympathetic arousal the fight-or-flight response into performance and health I kind of feel like we should have a whole episode on sympathetic arousal because it sounds vaguely dirty, but I have no idea what it means. <laughs> the fight or flight response. Gotcha. Yeah. It's a maladaptive for, for modern day policing because it does everything that we don't want in the body to make good critical decisions. Good stuff. Well, look, mate, thanks for spending some time. I really appreciate it. Great. Nice to finally get on here. Hey, I'll talk you with that bullshit. And, uh, and by the way, when you see it, say, say hi to Lois. I will. I will. <laughs> thanks, mate. Thanks. That was episode 58 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Dallas, Texas in October 2022. Follow at underscore Reducing Crime on Twitter for details of new episodes. And I personally lurk at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe. If you subscribe at Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple or wherever, 
fresh episodes will magically appear every month. You could even leave a rating and a comment. I'll tweet the best ones. Be safe and best of luck. Thank you.